All right, good morning. It's good to be in the land of living. I have uh, been battling the flu this week. I don't know if you guys have gone through that, but that is not fun. Let me tell you something. Um, and so uh, I apologize ahead. I've, I've notified my, our media team that if I start hacking up here to uh, turn the microphone down. So, um, so we'll do our best here. All right, let me pray for us as we get started. Father, uh, I need your help. Um, God, we want to know you and see you. God, we want to delight in you, in your story, in your gospel, what you've done for us. We want to be changed here in our seats, God, as we behold the glory of Christ. I pray, God, that you would um, open up our eyes, incline our heart, help us to want it, and then, God, uh, just satisfy us. God, satisfy our hearts this morning with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we've been on a journey as a church here for the month of January, uh, kind of going through our kind of what we call philosophy of ministry, uh, how, we, how we as a church are going to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 28. And we have talked about four key phrases uh, that we're using. We've covered two so far. Today will be our third, and we'll cover our fourth next week. And, and they are this. This is how we will seek as a church to fulfill the great commission as we move forward together. Number one, we're going to talk about delighting in the gospel. Um, number two, growing through relationships. Three, serving our community. And four, sending into the world. Those aren't radical, mind-blowing thoughts. If you've been in church long at all, you kind of, these things kind of maybe kind of sit with you. You understand that framework. But it's important to go back to, as we started this whole series off, I talked about you know, the Packers and going back to the, oh, this is a football, right? Going back to what is it that we're about how are we going to move forward? And so we have, we've talked about delighting the gospel. We, you, ha, you must know this, that we are a church that has been and will, com- and will continue to be committed to the Word of God. Okay, We'll continue to proclaim the Word of God. We'll continue to teach the Word of God. We'll continue to ground ourselves in the Word of God. And that gospel, that story of God in it, throughout the Bible, and that story of redemption, the story of what Christ has done for us that we just sang about, that will move us, as we looked at last week, to grow through relationships. It will move us to be honest and vulnerable and transparent and, and begin to move out and commit to the one another's that Scripture calls us to, to uh, commit to. And today we're going to look at how that same gospel story is going to move us to move outside of our circle, outside of this room, and move out into the community and begin to serve them for the sake of God's glory and God's gospel. And so this is foundational for us. This is really one of those images that Jesus has used. Uh, he uses in Matthew 5. And he calls us there the light of the world, but he also calls us there to be the, what, the salt of the earth, Matthew 5, verse 13. And that idea of salt is important. Now, we think of salt. We think of uh, something you put on French fries um, or something like that, right? But back then, in the ancient Mediterranean world, they used salt as a means of preservation. Okay, there was no refrigeration uh, 2,000 years ago, and so uh, this is what they used to kind of preserve the meat and different things they had. And so what it did, it helped, it helped stay back. Uh, decay. It helped prevent corruption from spreading uh, during this time. And that implies when Jesus says that's what we are to be, that implies two things. First, it tells us that our world is tending towards decay, right? If we're to be salt, then the world must be decaying, and we're, we're supposed to go and actually be part of that preservation of that world. The second thing is that we're supposed to be the people of God that move out to help in that way, and so if we think of our world, as Jesus describes it, if we're, if we're to think of it as decaying, you know, like a piece of meat left out on the street during the summertime, then our role is to be salt, to be, pres- be a preservative. That means that unlike the rest of the world that tends to run from problems, to run from brokenness, um, and not, doesn't want to get involved in the people's problems, instead we as the followers of Jesus are to jump into those problems. We are to be part of the solution to the culture. We're not to run away from it. We are to jump in where there's hurt and where there's pain. We're to jump into the fray, help stem the pain, actually maybe take a little bit of the pain onto ourselves because as we'll look at this morning, that's exactly what Jesus did for us, right? That's our motivation. I've told you this before, and I want to kind of re- rehash this again because it's important that we understand how we got here. This idea of being salt, of being of serving the community and going out into where it's broken and where, where it's hurting is one of the primary reasons why we have a Bible today in our hands. The reason we have the gospel brought to us today is because early on in the early church, after the New Testament was written, okay, during that time, about three, 400 A.D., the church at that time was a marginalized group of people. 
Okay? It wasn't a, a major religion of the Roman Empire. It was actually very marginalized during that time. And, and what was happening during that time were there was plagues coming through. And the plagues, you may know this from history, were just ravishing and tearing apart uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, and the Roman citizens who weren't affected by it, kind of like you do now when someone's got the flu, you run the other direction, right? I've got to get out of here, uh, quarantine my, my, you know, my children's spouse off into this room. I can't get this. And so they all ran, right? They ran away um, out of, to get out of the area. They left behind family. They left behind friends who had the plague. Doctors ran. And so everyone ran for their life to not get caught up into the plague. Some historians actually refer to it as they were basically just people just walking around half dead in the streets dying of this, of this plague. One uh, Roman historian, his, name is, uh, his official name is Thucydides. Um, I call him T. T. Diddy would be a much better way to say it if you'd like. Um, I rename my historians because they're hard to say. Uh, he said this. This is a Roman historian. He just uh, observing what was happening. He said, people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other. Half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets and flocking around the fountains in their desire for water. The temples in which they took up their quarters were full of dead bodies of people who had died inside of them. Can you imagine what that was like, right? And so everyone's running. Everyone who is a part of the Roman society, everyone in that part of the country is moving and running out. Doctors are leaving. Those who could, didn't have the means of leaving, right? Not everybody had the means of leaving. They boarded up their houses and their doors so that no one would come inside of them. And they boarded them all up. As a matter of fact, one, one uh, a story, and again, Rodney Stark is his name. He's a sociologist at the University of Washington. Um, no relation to, to Tony Stark, by the way. He said this, few of you caught that. All right, it was, uh, he said this, it was what any prudent person would have done, right? He's like, this makes sense. Humanly speaking, you board your house up, you can't leave, you don't want the plague. This is what you would do had you had the means, unless, of course, they were Galileans. This is a non-Christian historian here. Galileans, by the way, if you don't know what that, that phrase comes from, it may sound familiar to you, the Galilee, Sea of Galilee, the New Testament, Jesus taught around the Sea of Galilee. They called, it was a pejorative term, they kind of make fun of the followers of Christ. They called them Galileans because that was kind of like the, the out, you know, out in the woods kind of, kind of people. They called them Galileans. So here he's saying everyone else who had any sense boarded up or they ran out of town. But for those crazy Galileans, <laughs> they didn't do that. They acted completely different. The followers of Christ, instead of running and caring just for themselves, served one another. They took care of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's the radical part. They moved outside of their own circle and began to care for those who were dying of the plague who were not Christians in their community. And it was, and they swung open their doors. When everyone else was boarding them up, they left them open. They allowed people to come in. They weren't doctors. They weren't nurses. They, they had water. They had a place to sleep. They gave friendship and care and, and, and they gave a place to stay. And many of them died, actually, from the plague themselves. And it was their theology that motivated them. We talked about this morning in our family meeting the importance of doctrine. It was doctrine. It was the understanding of God, the understanding of Christ and the gospel that moved them to actually go out and serve their community. And here again, this Rodney Stark guy, here's what he said. The central doctrines of Christianity prompted and sustained attractive, liberating, and effective social relations and organizations. During the crisis, he said, Christians fulfilled their ideal of ministering to everyone. And there were many survivors who owed their lives to their Christian neighbors. So you see how this works out. All of a sudden, the plague begins to go away. Anyone who survived it, who was left in the Roman Empire, were either Christians, who all stayed behind, or people who, who Christians helped and nursed and helped and given a place to stay. So when all that was over, that, the dust was clear. That's all the people that were remaining. And one pastor during the time, Dionysus is his name, and he said this. This is what he wrote about commentary. What was He was a pastor during this time in the Roman era. He said this. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, depart this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing, caring others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. 
Does that sound familiar? I mean, do, do you hear the gospel in his description of literally what they did is they had the transfer of the sickness got onto them as they were helping, and they died, and these people lived instead. So guess what happened when all this was said and done? Everybody who was, who was not a believer, who were, they looked at these Galileans, these followers of Christ, and they go, okay, we don't know why you did this. This doesn't make any sense to us. All of our friends, our relatives, our family took off running. Tell me about this Jesus. And all of a sudden, Christianity exploded. Fourth century, it completely exploded. Matter of fact, one of a thousand percent increase in pop- became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire around 350 to 400 AD. And it completely exploded. All because the people of God were willing to risk their own comfort, their own prestige, their own personal happiness to go out and serve their surrounding community and meet needs that was around them. And so my, my question, you say, why do I bring all that up? I wanted to bring that up, to put that before us, to go, how do we become that again? How does the church today become what it once was in that way? How do we seek to serve and give and minister to people outside of our clan, right? Outside of our group. How do we go out and selflessly go out there and serve in that capacity? How do we build bridges like they did for the sake of the gospel in serving our community? And here's what we'll look at today. Three points. The first, we need to understand our hindrances. Okay, We're going to look at this passage we just read earlier. The hindrance to serving others. And then we need to know our design. Okay, know our design, how we were designed to serve others. And lastly, we're going to see our freedom we have in the gospel to serve. Okay, so we're going to go. So number one, our hindrance to serve others. We pick up our story here in Matthew chapter 20, in verse 20. And you have to understand, Jesus just announced, if you look up in your Bible a little bit there, um, depending on what translation you have there, but look up a little bit, you'll see the previous statements by Jesus. He explained for now the third time, okay, they're heading to Jerusalem. He's explained very clearly, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. Okay, he said that three different times. And so he's just announced that. But you have to understand, you're like, that seems pretty clear that Jesus said this three different times. Why don't they get it? Because it wasn't a popular opinion of Jesus. If you remember back in our study of the Gospel of John, we saw how the crowds followed Jesus, and they liked to be with him. And they like to actually um, see the miracles. They like the experience of the healing, obviously. They got free food, right? They got food multiplied for them. And so they love Jesus. They were a fan of Jesus. They love the idea that he was coming in to take out these Romans. And he was going to establish, put Israel back on the map and establish his kingdom. And they were all going to be the recipients, right? They're going to, they're going to back the right guy, okay? And so it was all kind of political to them. Even his own disciples believed that. And many of them still couldn't get out of their mind that he could possibly die. And so the crowds, his own family, even his own disciples saw Jesus primarily as a king coming to conquer the Romans. And, and fair, I mean, they had a reason for that. They read their Old Testament. There is many prophecies of the Messiah coming to establish his kingdom, which, which are true, which are going to be fulfilled, right? They are coming, but not, they, they needed a savior before they needed a king. They had to deal with a problem, a sin problem, a relationship with God broken. If Jesus came as king to set up his kingdom, there would be no subjects in his kingdom, okay? He needed to take care of sin first. And so here we have, it says the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Who is that? James and John. Okay, that's who that is. You may be familiar with those guys. Uh, They're part of Jesus' kind of inner circle of disciples. Their mother, uh, suffice it to say, would would have been most likely the aunt, okay, of Jesus. That would make these guys Jesus' cousins. Okay, so, so these guys are, are Jesus' cousins. She was the sister of Mary. Her two boys probably told mom, like, hey, you know, Jesus, he's talking about this dying thing, but I, we, we know he's coming for his kingdom, and she's probably like, okay, let me, let me go talk to him for a minute, right? So mom you know, steps in. She, she, she basically talks to Jesus for her boys. Um, she claims kind of blood right, as it were, like, if you're going to be the king in your kingdom and my two sons are related to you, they should have some prominent positions. Does that make sense? That's kind of her logic and what she is thinking. And so it says in verse 22, Jesus says, you, you don't know what you're asking, yeah, and I love how Jesus responds. There's about a hundred ways I could think of responding to this, uh, other than what Jesus said. Right? He responds with the question, "Do you do you know what you're asking here?" I mean, he has explained himself clear so many times, and you can imagine three years teaching, demonstrating service, 
explaining his upcoming death and resurrection. And here, on the precipice of his death, right? This is Matthew 20, right? Matthew 28 is the end. It's coming up pretty quick here in the story. He's about to walk into Jerusalem, and two of his lead disciples, right? Two of his lead disciples and his aunt want to talk contracts. They want to talk positions. They want to talk authority and power. I mean, it's completely opposite of everything he has shown, everything that he has said to them. Also remember these two guys earlier on in the, uh, the Gospels as well. These are the two guys when the Samaritans wouldn't let Jesus come through. I don't know if you're familiar with this story or not. They were going to pass through Samaria, and the Samaritan says, we don't want you to come through our town. You need to go around the mountain. And the James and John were like, let's just bring down fire on them. You know, they were, they were the ones asking Jesus, hey, you want me to call down as if they had that power? Can you want me, you me to call down lightning on them? I'll strike them. We'll, we'll, we'll turn them into crispy bacon for you. You know, I mean, it was, they completely did not get the idea of what Jesus came to do. So Jesus patiently responds with a question. He talks about drinking a cup. All right? There's two cups in the Old Testament. There's a cup of salvation, and there's a cup of wrath. And, and what, he's, what, it, what is important about that cup, both cups, is that both cups involve suffering. You either suffer to save, or you suffer in bearing the wrath of God. The thing is, is that Jesus was going to drink both of those, right? He was going to drink both of those. And these guys are asking, they say, you know, we're, we're able to drink that cup. They have no idea what they're asking for, right? They want to sit to the left hand, the right hand, you know, in the kingdom. And the reality is that Jesus' greatest glory, at the pinnacle of his glory, actually, an irony here, was on the cross. And who were the people on his left hand and his right hand side? They were two thieves, right? I mean, they have no idea what they're asking for. Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So lest, lest you think these are only two disciples that thought this way, you know why they're mad, right? They're mad because they got beat to the punch, right? Oh, man, he got, he got his mom to go argue for him. I'm sure Peter's thinking, I always talk before I think. How in the world did they beat me to this, right? I mean, this, this, this is, they're completely um, eavesdropping on this conversation. But before we shake our head at the disciples, and before we look at them and go like, man, they were so consumed with wanting power and authority and all of this, let's realize that we have the same heart. We desire position, benefits, kickbacks, authority, power, above suffering and service and deference, humility and submission. We'd rather rule with King Jesus than suffer with Savior Jesus. We'd rather carry a crown on our head than carry a cross on our back. We'd rather, be, we'd rather serve, or rather be served, rather than be serve, rather than serve. And this is the reality of the human heart. Back in our study on Titus, chapter 3, verse 3, Titus describes what it looked like before the grace of God flooded our lives. We ourselves, he says, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's not a pretty picture. That's pretty, pretty bleak, right? And another, the idea says that we were foolish. What does that mean? It means we, we didn't think, we just responded, which is exactly what the disciples are doing, right? It's a, it is to be mindless and operate with people almost in an animal-like fashion, Pursuing our desires and interests at the expense of others. And it says they were led astray, which is the idea of being deceived, so that we're just wandering around this earth. Actually, the word is, uh, we get our English word planet. There's like a wandering body out there in the universe, just kind of wandering around. No real purpose, no real meaning. Um, roaming this world, as it were, and just thinking, you know, this is my world, you just live in it. And so this is what everyone's thinking. It's all about me, you serve me, you give to me not realizing the destruction and the chaos that we're bringing into people's lives. This led us to be slaves, it says, to our own passions and pleasures, which again were designed to be satisfied in God and used to serve other people, and instead we actually used it to, to, to actually take from people. Instead of we turned these inward on ourselves. I gave you this old Latin phrase before. I'll give it to you again. I'll put it on the screen. Incurvitus insane. You're like, okay, there's a new one. That's a great Scrabble word for you right there. Um, it's an old Latin word to describe the bent, okay? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can feel this, right? The bent. The bent of the soul. It cur- you see the curve, the curve, the curve of the soul. The soul was designed by God with all of its energy, all the passion, all of the ambition, and all of that God gave us. That's wired into us. It's a good thing that we were meant to be pointed out from us in service to God and in service to others. And instead, what these guys were saying back in, their, in the Middle Ages is that it's curved. It's gone out, and what has it done? It's curved, and it's gone itself right back onto us. And so we all have this bent. We all have this curve. You feel it, right? 
You feel it when there's an opportunity to serve or meet some need in front of you or an opportunity to serve God in this way. You may do it, but you feel the pull, don't you? You feel the curve. You feel the, uh, I got to bend it away from myself. It just automatically turns right back to us. And that's what we have. Augustine, way back in the fourth century, wrote a classic work called The City of God. And he talked about this. He talked about this inward curve, and, and it was meant to be an outward curve. It was meant to point to God. And so we have turned this back onto ourselves. And it doesn't just merely destroy the individual. It actually destroys the very fabric of human community and society. So instead of serving people and submitting to their interests before our own, we end up using people, right? And become full of malice and envy. So no matter how high you may think of yourself this morning, no matter what kind of moral resume you bring with you today, know that you're bent. I'm bent. We're all bent right? we uh, bent on serving ourselves, bent on taking advantage of others, and even bent on using God's name to do that, actually. That's how the world operates. That's exactly what Jesus says here, doesn't he? He goes into, down to verse 25. He talks about the rulers of the Gentiles, the ones out in the world. This is how they work. They want to exercise authority, it says. He says, but you must be a slave. In this society, there was nothing lower than a slave. The slave's whole life was lived in service for which he could claim neither credit or reward. Thus, my friends, to set one's heart on prominence and reputation and importance is to lose the very heart of the gospel story, the very heart of Christianity. And so we find ourselves just like the disciples with the same bent, the same turn, the same inward focus onto ourselves. But number two, that's not the way we were designed, okay? We were designed differently. We weren't designed, that's not the way we were made to be. If you look down at verse 28, Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve, okay? Now, Jesus' title for himself is really important here. He calls himself the Son of Man, okay? There's a reason for that. That title indicates his, talks about his humanity, his identification with us, okay? He's he's 100% man and 100% God, okay? This is going back to our our doctrinal statements. And so here, when he says he's a Son of Man, it's, it's understanding that, that he is the epitome of what we were supposed to be, okay? Everything you see in Jesus and how he treated others, how he served others, how he glorified God is the epitome of what humanity was supposed to be. He was sinless, okay? He never sinned, unlike all of us. He actually fulfilled everything that we were supposed to be. He was the epitome and the personification of what we were supposed to be. Matter of fact, if you go to Romans 5, we won't go there now, you can read about how Paul talks about Jesus being the second Adam, right? The second Adam. He came to do what our forefather, Adam, couldn't do. Adam fell. Adam, Adam rebelled. Jesus fulfilled what Adam could not do. He lived, again, a perfect life that we could not live. And so one of the unique things when, when Jesus lived this out is actually in this, this living out of serving and giving and, and towards other people, he was, he was actually showing us not just what we were supposed to be, but actually who God is. Now, stay with me for a moment. I'm, 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 we're going to do some theology here, okay? Many religions proclaim a God who just sits on his, or his throne, as it were, and creates people to do his bidding. Maybe that's what you think Christianity is, Right? God creates a bunch of people to kind of do his bidding. It's kind of like the old Greek gods, you know, the purpose that they exist, the people exist to serve them. They pray, they get what they need, etc. They had humans because without their prayers and service, they would be weakened. They, need, they needed humans in order to, th- to thrive in power and dominion. But the God of the Bible is not like that. Okay? The God of the Bible doesn't need us. You know that? God doesn't need us, but we do need him. Listen to Acts 17. Paul put it this way. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. So here's the question. Why doesn't God need us then? Because he has himself. (laughs) He is self-existent. Another way of putting this, you could say, is actually what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, I know that's a complex thought, but it's significant. We believe in a God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each person fully God, and there's yet one God. To put it another way, the first John, uh, the writer John puts it this way, he says God is love. It's another way of describing the Trinity. 
God is love. God is a community of persons, Father, Son, Spirit, who give and serve and defer to one another. You ever read the Gospels? You ever see the Gospel of John, Jesus constantly saying what? I did not, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says it, he says it over 30 times. Does that mean Jesus was like a lower tier like than the Father? Not at all. He, that, he was explaining the relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout eternity have been giving to one another, serving one another. That's the epitome of who. And we were made in his image. That's how we were made to be. And so in God, there's not an inkling of selfishness found. Only constant, continual, overflowing service and giving and submitting to one another. And that's, again, completely opposite of how we function in our world because of sin. Self-centeredness has made our world stop moving. We stand still, and we want everyone else to kind of move around us, right? It's my world, you just live in it. But the relationship with the, with the Trinity is completely the opposite. I've shared this word before. I know I keep bringing up lessons I've given before, but it's always good to hear it again. I'm going to give you another word. Sorry, I'm, I don't usually do this like dropping Greek and Latin words. I'm not really that smart. Trust me, it, just, it may sound like that. But here's another word, okay? Now, notice the word, perichoresis. It's an old, this is how they used to, the word trinity is not in the Bible. Oh, I'm going to mess up the camera. I never do this. Look at this. I'm walking away from the pulpit right now. Um, they're like, whoa, camera, oh, no. Um, no, 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 i got to get back over here. I don't know what I'm doing. That's kidding. All right, so you see in the word there, there's a, the word trinity is not in the Bible, okay? It's not in the Bible. The word itself, the, the doctrine, the understanding is from verses we put together, oh, okay, here's what we see. But the old church fathers, when they spoke Greek, they had a word. They didn't use the word trinity. They used the word perichoresis. Now, look at the word. You can see this. I know you're like, man, I got up this morning for this. You see the word? Can you see the word choreography in there? Can you see it? Peri is the word around. Choresis is to dance. So it's the word to dance around. Isn't that interesting? That's how they described God. One who dances around himself. You're like, well, that sounds really bizarre and weird. What does that mean? And what is he talking about? What is he talking about here? Sorry, camera. Uh, what we're talking about here is, uh, is that they're actually all dancing around one another. They're deferring to one another. No, not you. Not, not, not me. Not, I'm going to serve you. And so there's this constant movement of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dancing, as it were, around one another, serving one another, deferring to one another, listening to one another. All that's taking place. Okay? That's how they describe God. That's the nature, the core of God. God is a serving God. And so when we, go back to Genesis 1, we're made in his image, therefore we were made like that. That means life is found, my friends, not in circling around yourself, but in circling around other people. If you've come to know Christ and you've been freed from this bent serving of the self, you begin to find little inklings. You begin to see, yeah, life is found actually in giving. Life is found in serving other people. I do find great joy in giving away of my life to other people. That's a work of God, almost rewiring, putting you back together the way you were originally designed to be. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. That's what the universe, God, history, and life is all about. So he says, if you favor money, power, accomplishment over human relationships, you will dash yourself on the rocks of reality. When Jesus said you must lose yourself in service to find yourself, he was recounting what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been doing throughout eternity. You will then never get a sense of self standing still, as it were, and making everything revolve around your needs and interests. So, my friends, the entire Bible is a testament to the service of our God. Matter of fact, God serves us so much, what did he do? He took on human flesh and lived among us, right? He entered our humanity by being born. His hands touched us. His eyes beheld us. His feet walked with us. His presence was near us. And so Jesus displayed for us how we were designed to live as image bearers of God, not to be served, but to serve. That's why Jesus gives this statement. So when we read the Gospels, we see Jesus fulfilling this all the time, don't we? Jesus is constantly serving the broken, isn't he? He's constantly serving the outcasts and the poor, which is what got the religious leaders all upset with him. Remember that? He was fulfilling exactly what the Bible had said for us to do over and over. Let me just give you a few samples. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is a God of God's Lord of Lords, great, almighty, awesome God. It's not partial, it takes bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner. 
that's the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Uh, Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. He was generous to the needy, honors him. And so there's this connection that God makes even to the poor. Jeremiah twenty two sixteen, he, speaking of God, judged the cause of the poor and needy, and then it was well. Is it not this what it means to know me? You want to know what it means to know me, God says? Go serve. Judge the help for the cause of the needy and the poor. And I love this one. Ezekiel 16, 49. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah. You think of like God's condemnation on Sodom and Gomorrah. You say it's homosexuality. Okay, yes, that was part of it. But here's another commentary on that city and how it was broken. Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor needy. Isn't it interesting? There's the commentary on why the city was destroyed. So it shouldn't shock us. When we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus' life. He was born to a marginalized mom. He lived in a marginalized town. He had marginalized disciples, and he was around marginalized people all the time, which is why Luke 5 30 says the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, right? Those are the worst people in that culture, like, ah, oh, the tax collectors and sinners, which is the big category of anybody that wasn't their group. Luke seven thirty nine. now when the Pharisees had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him. She is a sinner. Luke 15, 2, they grumbled again, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This, is, this, was his, this was how he was referred to. He was always in the wrong place, as it were, according to them. This is how we were designed to live, guys. Jesus epitomizes what we were supposed to be. He epitomizes who God is. We were made to serve, not to be served, find our joy in that. But how do we break this bent towards ourselves? How do we find freedom to serve others as God made us to? How do we become a church that serves the broken, that serves our community? Well, number three, this is the last point here, our freedom. Here it is, verse 28 again. So a man came not to be served, but to serve, and here's the word, to give his life a ransom for many. Two key words here. You can circle them in your Bible because they're really, really important. The word ransom and the word for. You're like, really? For is important? Yeah, for is super important. Okay, we're going to talk about that. The word ransom was a word that refers to a payment to release someone from slavery. We would think of it today, if you had a, a kind of a modern day analogy of this, it would be like a hostage situation. Someone paying to free someone who is caught or is in a hostage situation. This is a fitting description of what sin's control over us has done. It it held us hostage, and Jesus' death freed us from that hostage of sin. This is what Jesus would say in John 8. He says, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So he came to set us free from that, ransom us. You say, but, but how does he ransom us from sin? How does he break the bent? How does he give us freedom? And it's that one little word, for. The word means literally in the place of. You can even write it in your Bible if you want. It means in the place of. Jesus was our substitute. Our bent to sin places us in a no-win situation. Lost, eternally damned. But Jesus went under the weight for us. And this is the glory of the gospel, guys. It's not that Jesus just died for you in order to express a loving sentiment, okay? It's not that. It's that Jesus died instead of you. He didn't just die to say, look how much I I love you. It was that he died instead of us. Jesus gave us freedom by giving up his freedom. He died when, when he should have lived. He suffered when he should have conquered. And that was the only way to break the bit in us. It was the only way for God to, as it were, recreate a mass of humanity that resembled himself that lived for serving others. Jesus had to go under the knife. He had to face the consequences. He had to die in our stead. And it's this selfless love that changes us. By faith in Christ, we get not only a new heart that beats for God, but we get freedom and motivation to look outside of ourselves and onto others. Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice moves us to serve others the way he served us. We're willing to bear the pain of others' suffering because that's what Jesus did for us. We're willing to pay the price of losing our time and our talent and our treasure to benefit others because that's what Jesus did for us. We're willing to take the hits of others and bear their wounds because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. So if you really understand the cross, 
then you're moved out into the world in joyful service. You do as Psalm 100 says, you serve the Lord with gladness. You do not need to help people, but you want to help people. You see how the gospel changes that? To resemble the one who did so much for you, to bring him to light. Whether you think the person is worthy of your service doesn't even cross your mind. Only the gospel gives you such motivation for service. Only the gospel moves you to give up your life for the good of others. This is why Paul, when he writes his great doctrinal dissertation in Romans, Romans 1 through 11, he talks about all this doctrine about who, who we are and how we've fallen short and how God, had, Christ has come and had reconciled us and redeemed us and brought us and justified us. He writes all of that and he gets to Romans 12, verse 1. And here's what he says. I appeal to you, therefore. Whenever the therefore we ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Why is it there? He's talking about all the previous 11 chapters. By the mercies of God, in light of them, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as your spiritual worship. In light of all that Christ has done, he says, in light of that, turn it over, right? Turn it over. Well, turn what over, Chris? Turn your hands over for God to use for his glory and advancement of his kingdom. Turn your feet over for God to use for his glory and advancement of his kingdom. Turn your minds over to use for his glory and advancement of his kingdom. Turn your entire bodies over. And all that we have for God to use for his glory and advancement of his kingdom. That's how change happens. That's, that, that motivation of the gospel to go out and serve others in light of what Christ has done, in light of how we were designed to be, that changes people. That draws attention. Influence, as he describes here in Matthew 20, gained through power and control, that doesn't change society, guys. It doesn't change anything, at least not for the good, because it doesn't change hearts. It doesn't change hearts. Jesus is calling us to bring influence through service. That's countercultural. That's subversive. That's underneath. That's changing culture, society, people from underneath. Be so sacrificially loving that people around us who don't believe what we believe will soon be unable to imagine the place without us. When they volunteer to begin to look up because of the attractiveness of our service and our love, that's where influence is found. My friends, we cannot underestimate the value of our presence as a church in our community. The problem in our world is not the politics, it's not the policies. It's a separation from relationship with God. And the solution is the church with the gospel, moving out, serving, meeting needs. That's, that's the goal. We must serve our community, not run away from it. We can't run away from it. We've got to move out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He, was, he knew a thing or two about this, about, about people running away. He was a pastor in Germany during Hitler's time. Most pastors actually sided with Hitler during that time. He died going the other direction. He said this, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. We can't hide, guys. We, we can't just have a holy huddle and, you know, hang around and encourage one another, pat each other on the back. That's great. We need to serve one another. We saw that last week. We need to. But that love for one another has to spill out into the community. And the only time it's going to do that, the only time it's going to happen and be effective, it's when it's motivated by the service of Christ for us. When that's the motivation, people can see that. When it's obligation, they can see that too, right? We want to build the church with such a reputation that the community around us cannot imagine, imagine us existing, imagine this town existing without us being here because of how much love and service we do towards them in the name of Christ. And so as we go to communion... We want to reflect on that. Think about our own role personally. Think about our role corporately as a church. We want to pray for us as a body to move forward in that way. We want to embody what it was in the early church back then. We want to evaluate personally right now as we come to, the, come to communion. So if you're a believer, we're going to have some quiet time for you to reflect. How's your service? How's your eyes to see those in need around you? How's your reputation in the community, in your neighborhood and around? Are you giving? Are you serving? Are you, are you building bridges for the gospel in that way? We'll talk about here after, after a few songs, we'll talk about as a group here kind of practically what that looks like for us and what that looks like individually. But right now, just take evaluation. Ask God to search you, know you, Psalm 139, try you, see where you fall short. When you're ready, bread, juice, 
tables in the front and back represent the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do it in remembrance of him. Okay, and we give our offerings as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to, to serve you. Lord, it's, um, we're not here to play church. We're not here to, to check off an attendance list. God, we're here to give up our lives. We came to see you in your glory through the scriptures. And we want that to change us so that God, we're moved out of this place as a people of your own possession who proclaim your excellencies, God, through the, through the service and deeds in which we do. God, equip us in that way. Move us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, great. So we've got um, we've been having these panel discussions at the end of our, our January series here um, just to kind of work to be as practical as possible. What does what this idea of delighting in the gospel, growing through relationships, serving our community, sending into the world, what, what does that look like on a, on a very practical level? Um, and so there's, this, there's an analogy that we... We used actually at a deacon meeting this Thursday, past Thursday night, um, and we talked about there in a book that we're studying, and, and they proposed three models of how you would see a church, and one of them was as a cruise liner, where you look to select a church and join a church based on more or less the amenities, right? Is it preferentially, does it fit what I want, has it got, you know, what's the, what's the bedding situation look like on this cruise liner? What are, what are the pools like? What are the... What's, what are the meals like? What's all the very, very consumer-driven sort of model? And then they, they proposed a second model that was not a cruise liner, um, but it was a battleship. A battleship model where you say, hey, we want to get to this spot. We want to all focus our guns in this direction. We want to shoot them. Um, in that sense, the church programming becomes the guns, and you pay a couple of people to program them and make sure they're you know, aimed right where you want them um, and to fire those guns. Maybe you even see the pastors and the deacons and the life group teachers and so forth. Maybe they are the guns in that model. Um, but the third model that they presented was that of an aircraft carrier where you, you take the aircraft carrier where you're trying to go, and then from there you have people flying off in all their different aircrafts um, going in a thousand different directions, as it were, dropping gospel bombs on each place that they're going. Um, the, the idea of a mobilized church, where we're not just, we're not, certainly not just coming here to say, do they, do they have the best amenities here? And we're not in, in the cruise line where that is, and we're not just hearing from a battleship model of, hey, let's get a couple guys to fire the guns in the right direction, but to mobilize all of us to go out as our own aircraft into the community and to serve and spread both the love of Jesus and the good news of Jesus. Kind of a, a powerful analogy that I think was helpful for us as we studied um, and hopefully is helpful for the rest of uh, just the congregation as I share that. Um, so kind of on that, on that topic there, first question to toss out, how would you guys say that serving our community helps us advance the gospel as a church? What, what does that look like? So much of what is done in the world today it has strings attached. You know, people do things and they, they want something out of that. And one of the most powerful things we can do is just to do, do things just because we, obviously our motivation is from Christ and not have any strings attached in that and just doing things to genuinely help people. And uh, in a tangible way, recently... Um, again, because I'm a pastor, maybe I could do this. Maybe it wouldn't fit for you, but uh, one of the local mortuaries called to see if I would be willing to do a funeral service for someone that didn't have a church. And it's like, oh, wow, you know, there's somebody that has a need and be glad to do that. And just looking for ways that we can do things just because we love people and not for something we hope to get out of it. I think it also... Also, from a serving standpoint, gives us an opportunity uh, to just share God's love with other people. If I look at uh, Matthew four and and uh, Matthew four and nine, it talks about Jesus and it says that he went through the countryside, teaching, preaching, and healing. And I've always looked at that passage and said, you know, he's just kind of he, he's he's roaming the countryside on a, on a purpose, right? But he's going through the countryside through wherever he's at. Uh, I roam the countryside. I go to Fishers to work. Uh, I hang out a lot in in Brownsburg, obviously, and uh, but I go up to Fishers to work every day, and I'm I'm out in the area, and and that those are opportunities to teach, to preach the good news, 
and to share a healing hand. Now, I don't have the powers that Jesus did. His healing hand was obviously a lot different than mine. But uh, being a help uh, through uh, taking somebody some meals, uh, being somebody they can listen to when they've uh, got burdens on their minds and on their hearts, and being an encouragement is a way that we can share the gospel with others. And that is different. Uh, Pastor mentioned no strings attached. That is a different. People will notice that. As you talked, Pastor, about the, during the plagues when people noticed. They mm-hmm. said, wow, these people stayed behind. They risked their lives and lost their lives to do that. People will notice uh, your time and your sacrifice to do that. Yeah. And Mark, sorry I didn't introduce you. For those of you that may be new, <laughs> Mark Forsyth on the end. Mark is our deacon of mercy. Um, and does, a, does an excellent job working with the, the storehouse and a lot of other ways that we're practically serving the community. So this whole thing is right in his wheelhouse. Um, Pastor Chris, did you have anything to add to that, um, serving the community as far as advancing the gospel? Yeah, I mean, it, we mentioned in the sermon, but it, it changes your reputation as a body. You know, when, those, when, when your motivations are, um, are outward, when you're outward focused and not inward. I, mean, I think it's one of those things where we talk about our history here when you go through a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of, I mean, you, you guys know this more than, I haven't even been here three years yet, but many of you the last 10, 15 years know a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of hardship. And um, when you go through those times, you kind of turn, turn inward for healing. That's just kind of what happens. You just kind of need to heal. And, and it's, you know, it's that time, and we feel as the, as, as the Lord leads, this time, okay, let's, let's turn outward and let's move, let's move outward into the community and let's begin to serve and give and, and care for and look for those opportunities to do that. Uh, and as we do that, it begins to change even the reputation of the body itself to build bridges and relationships and roads in order to, in order to get the gospel out, right? So it becomes a great opportunity in that way. Sure. The, the uh, aircraft carrier analogy I used before was us getting out individually, but there are some ways corporately we can serve the community as well. And some of the newer initiatives we've had at the church, you think about the storehouse, back to Bethlehem, Northwest Community Park, those sorts of things. Um, let's kind of talk through those a little bit, how those help. Maybe, I mean, Mark, you oversee a lot of the things at the storehouse. Do you want to speak to maybe some philosophy behind the storehouse and how that is used to serve our community? Yeah, the storehouse uh, operates uh, just right here behind the church out of the, uh, one of the pole barns back there. We've got it set up. It's a, a, f- a ministry of basic food and basic clothing for people that are in need. Uh, it's open every Wednesday night from 5.30 to 7.30. One, I do want to thank everybody in here. who've done an outstanding job of coordinating it, running it, uh, providing donations for it, uh, keeping up on the food and the clothing. Uh, there's a box right down at the end of this hall where you can drop those things off. And, um, but what's interesting about the storehouse is there's been about in 2017, we had 120 different families come through the storehouse. Okay. So there's 120 families that had a need at a point in time. The average number of visits uh, for, the, for those people, those families rolling through there is three times. There's a lot of them that are just once. They just have a short-term need. They have a short-term challenge. They come in to get some food, or maybe they're coming in to get some clothing, and they come in uh, for that one time. Uh, the other interesting thing is we, we do get information there. I'd encourage you a couple things on that ministry where you can volunteer. One is there's work to make it run, to process it, to process clothing and do those things. And we always need help doing that. But I'd encourage you to get on the Hub and sign up for a Wednesday night from 5.30 to 7.30 and just come work. Come hang out with people. They're going to fill out a form when they come in that will tell you who, what their name is, if they have any prayer requests, what their needs are. And then that's just a great opportunity to have a conversation with somebody who needs some help. And uh, they need someone to talk to, possibly. They need uh, 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 a loving hand. Uh, we always try to pray with people before they leave, ask them what's, uh, what's on their heart, what's on their mind. They'll list out prayer requests, and we just take some time and pray with them. Um, we're going to be working on some programs in the next year to be inviting people out to church. Uh, 75% of the people that are coming through there do not indicate that they, come, they go to a church anywhere. So that's 90 families that have come through there that have a need and that the best of our knowledge are not attending a church uh, at this time. So, so that's what we do in that ministry, a great opportunity just to reach out and, and be able to help some people and, and care for some people here in this community. Well, a, a quick anecdote there. Uh, Christmas Eve, I saw a guy in the service I'd not seen before. Went over, introduced myself, met him, um, said, Man, I've, I've not seen you here before. Um, are you new to Bethesda? Do you, do you know anybody here? And he says, 
oh, yeah, I know many people here. I've been to the storehouse, and there's many people that have served me. And we're, we're literally mid-conversation, and Rick Graham comes up and gives this guy this huge hug. and says, man, I've been praying for you. How are you this week? I know you had surgery last week, and how's the recovery? And it was just it was really cool to see that at work. Um, yeah, good stuff at the storehouse. So B2B, Park, yeah, you want to talk I, about I, that a little bit? You know, I think it's helpful for you guys to, to know, and hopefully you start seeing this kind of putting, coming together, there is a method to the madness here. Uh, there, there is philosophy drives what we do. So we didn't start a storehouse where we thought, hmm, what's something good we can do in the community? Let's do that. Or, you know, hey, we got land. Let's turn it into a park just for fun. I mean, there, there, there is reasons behind all of this, and this is what's driving us. We're going, okay, how can we, how can we serve our community not just individually, but how can we do it corporately? How can we go out and, and build those relationships and build the reputation of the community and be outward focused towards them? How can we do that? Okay, storehouse is a great opportunity to do that. We can meet physical, tangible needs and relational needs. We have a park. We have all this land. What can we do with the land that we can help serve our community in this way? Oh, well, let's, let's, com- let's convert this into a place where people can come to our campus, where we can interact with them, where we can build relationships with them, where we can use that as a tool for building bridges and serving them. Back to Bethlehem, how can we bless our community? How can we both educate them in the gospel to know who Christ is and why he came? How can we... And the reason we did it the way we did it was, was not so that it would be a, a production necessarily of we and they come sit and watch. We purposely did it in the way that we interact. Do you notice that? If you've been back to Bethlehem, it's very interactional. Is that a word? I think I just made that up. Interactive. There we go. Thank you. Um, thank you. And, uh, and so interactive. It's highly interactive, right? And it was on, that's on purpose. Again, there's a, there's a reason for that. It was to allow us to build those relationships, to converse, to see them, talk to them, um, get on their level and interact in that way. And all those things have all been methods and reasons driven by a philosophy of ministry that goes, okay, how, serving our community is going to be one of our, you know, one of our flags. How, how can we do that effectively as a body corporately? So. Yeah, and I think one of the cool things about that, I was meeting with Dr. Snap, uh, the superintendent at Brownsburg Schools, eh, that's probably two, two months ago now, and he commented on it, he says, you know, I just, I keep getting this feedback from people in the community that Bethesda is under this transformation. It's more of an outward focus. And he goes, I, I love the Lord, and he's committed believers. So I am so excited to hear that from your body, um, the way God is doing things there. It's really a blessing. So that's, that's been exciting to get that feedback, too, as we strive towards these mm-hmm. things. Um, community groups, another key aspect in as a, as a body seeking to serve our community, um, how does that happen? What does it look like through the community groups? Well, those community groups are meant to be small. It's a way to get the body large into smaller groups, okay? They, they're small groups, but they're not small groups, right? They're Bible studies, but they're not Bible studies, uh, meaning that they're going to be small, and they're going to study the Bible, but they're going to be a ministry team, basically, a group of people that, that they get together and find ways not just to grow together, but to serve together. And so it's meant to put the... Put the creativity and the ideas into the hands of a smaller group of people to think, okay, how can we, as a smaller group of people in this community group, reach out in our community? What are the things maybe we share in common as a group, uh, similar interests or similar skill sets that we can go out and serve and help um, in our community? And so that's kind of a, a ministry team idea is really the drive behind them. It's been shown that, you know, two or three people working together can accomplish a lot more than two or three people independently uh, because there's that uh, motivation, encouragement, mm-hmm. and so that, that's a benefit of that. Yep. Well, and there's kind of that continuum, right? As an individual, you can mobilize very quickly, but there's a limited amount of you know, work that can be done because there's just one of you. And then you think of all, whatever, 500 of us, well, you put everybody together and you can do something like B2B. That's enormous, but your mobilization capability is slowed down there. And so community group kind of hits in the middle. Hey, what can, a do- what can a dozen of us do if we send out a quick group text? And like when the, when the tornadoes came through a couple of years ago, a couple of community groups dive right in to some elderly folks and start clearing their, um, their house out from the, this debris and whatnot. And so you kind of you try to hit that sweet spot between we can get work done, we can also be mobilized quickly. Um, if you're not a part of one of those, please see me afterwards. Uh, I'd love to help you get connected there. Um, Another huge ministry of the, the church and the school is Bethesda Christian Schools. Um, how does BCS help serve our community? 
Yeah, and we were, we were going to have Chad up here today to kind of share some of those things. He's got the flu this morning, so we'll kind of fill in for him. But, you know, with the school, uh, the school is a vital ministry of our church. We mentioned the storehouse. We mentioned uh, the park. We mentioned these different things, uh, back to Bethlehem, the school. These are all ways in which we can branch out into our community and serve our community. And so when we talk about from a philosophical standpoint, we want, we want the school to be a basis. We've mentioned our family meeting, the, the biggest amount of scholarships we've ever gotten, you know, donations this year to get more students into the door. And the more students into the door is not, you know, it's not just for, you know, paying the bills, get the financial bottom line up. Obviously, that's, that's helpful. If you're going to exist, you have to have the finances to support yourself. But it's, it's much more than that. To get more people in the door is an opportunity to get more souls, right? The, the children, young people who will live forever to come into the doors, to be able to sit on a day-to-day basis to hear the Word of God, to be taught in all different capacities how the gospel shapes every form of education, and then to be able to have an impact of relationships being built uh, with fellow Christians and also with their teachers and all of that. that. That environment is a great opportunity for us to serve our community, and we want more to come in uh, into, our, into our school and be a part of that. And not to mention... Not to mention when you get into the extended families, when I mean, you have 300-plus students over there, but then when you get into the parents, the siblings, the grandparents, mm-hmm. your outreach into the community and outreach out to people who may not know Christ as their Savior is huge. And uh, that's a great opportunity from the school standpoint to get the gospel out to, to a lot more people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've talked about large group, small group, individual all kind of stemming from that aircraft carrier analogy. So for our last question, let's go back to the individual level and say, hey, what are some ways that this looks like very practically? How can I serve in the community this week, perhaps? Um, what would that look like? Maybe Pastor Brian, I even put you on the spot. You've done some pretty cool things in your neighborhood. Do you want to share some of those? I'm thinking of some individuals. One, uh, thinking of Lynn Paul, who's on our street and has some tremendous landscaping abilities, and I've seen him out helping neighbors with that and again it just provides opportunities to share because Lynn's a vibrant witness for the Lord but I thought of this you guys are going to think this is weird I thought of chainsaw sounds weird right not one from from Texas though right (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, when my father passed away (laughs) my father passed away several years ago he left me my mom made sure he did a chainsaw and it's God's allowed me to use that to saw up a lot, some of the limbs on our street and the tree limbs and, uh, and be, <laughs> I thought I better, you know, kind of clarify that, but to, to just help, help people in that way. And, and so the question is, what's your chainsaw? What is it? What's a tool? What's something that you have that God can use? And uh, it's amazing how he could use that. Yeah, and that's the thing is just finding what, what is it, what, what capacity do you have? What gift, talent, ability, interests, uh, education, uh, specialty that you can use <clears throat> to, to dive into the community and serve the community, right? And so that's kind of the, the individual question we must ask ourselves. Uh, again, the community group helps individuals in that way uh, as well. You know, I look at it as like I, I coach. I don't do a lot of things well. I talk and I coach. That's about it. And, um, and so I was like, okay, I coach baseball and I coach basketball in Brownsburg. You know, I try to find relationships. I keep, and when I do drafts for the kids, I try to draft the same kids because I want the same families. I'm building relationships with the, you know, with the families of the kids that I, I'm coaching. And so just finding those relationships to be able to serve in what you can do. Yeah, I think um, my dad has done a remarkable job of this. I'm so proud of some of the things he's done. But my dad is 63 years old and is still going out snowblowing his driveway and other people's driveways as well. Um, and so a couple of years ago, he went out and he bought a, just the most industrial-strength snow, snowblower you could find, not because he necessarily needed it for an enormous driveway, but to say, hey, if I'm going to do six or eight of these in a day, I can't have the, the old rundown used one I used to have. Um, and the ways that, that has opened doors for the gospel in his community in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, are amazing. I could go on and on, and for time purposes, I will not do that, I promise. Um, but just seeing a, a basic need, man, there's two feet of snow on my neighbor's driveway or two inches, and I'll, I'll seize that opportunity. And I think the other thing is is just build, taking the time to build relationships, and I know my, my biggest challenge in that area that I continue to try to work on is uh, two things. Uh, one, you've got to build the relationships to be able to share the gospel so that when people have needs, you'll know about the needs. 
and, uh, and you'll be able to take the time to do it. But the two things that I struggle with the most that I always constantly have to battle is time, like making sure I have enough time to actually go snow blow the five other driveways, rather than just being in such a hurry to get done what I have to do that I, I can't take the time to do that. So slowing my life down and making sure there's time in there to go do that. And the second thing, to be quite honest with you, is just making sure I look at people as, uh, as created in the image of God, right? Uh, the pastor used a passage earlier in, in Luke uh, 7, which is a, a you know, passage I look at a lot to remind me of that. Because um, my tendency will be to lean towards being a Pharisee, <laughs> right? And uh, that will really crush my ability to go serve people uh, because I just won't look at them the way Jesus would look at them and the way God looks at them. And so those are the two things when I'm looking at serving, I'm trying to say, hey, do I got enough time freed up? And then am I looking at people the way God looks at them and having a heart for them the way God does? Yeah, I'd say that you know, on that point there, just that you mentioned basically creating margin in your life. You know, create margin so you're actually able to serve. We talk about, again, philosophy. I know I keep coming back to this. This is kind of what our series is about. We, we crafted and moved even everything to Sundays, Sunday morning, Sunday night. You're like, why do we do everything on Sunday? So that we can create the margin of six days a week to be able to open up. So on Wednesday night, you can go serve at the storehouse so that you can be in your neighborhood, so you can go coach, coach teams. You can find ways to get involved in community groups. That's why we even moved things the way we did. Again, there's method to the, you know, there's reasons behind the madness. There is, there's reasons for the decisions and things that are making in that way is to create that margin and to help you in that capacity.